0: You are listening to Inside Healthcare, a podcast presented by NCQA.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Inside Healthcare, NCQA's podcast. I'm Lawrence Green. Today, NCQA Executive Vice President, Dr. Michael Barr talks with Daniel Brooks, Director of Health Equity at AmeriHealth Caritas. This podcast was recorded after Daniel Brooks presented on the return on investment for health equity and quality improvement at NCQA's Virtual Digital Quality Summit earlier this year. Apologies for the sound quality. This podcast was recorded virtually as we continue to social distance. Let's get started.
0: Welcome to Danielle Brooks, an attorney and currently director of health equity at AmeriHealth Caritas since October 2018. I got to know Danielle when she was at eHealth Initiative back in 2010, 2012. So it's really good to see you again, Danielle. You did a great talk at our Digital Quality Summit called Beyond Data Collection, the Return on Investment on Health Equity and Quality Improvement. And we wanted to follow up on that presentation because, unfortunately, we ran out, a little, we ran out of time and there were a lot of questions, a lot of interest in the topic. So what I've done is I pulled from some of those questions, I added a couple of my own, and we, we just wanted to get your take on a, a really some very important issues that the audience was was keen on. During the presentation, you specifically uh, identified the disproportionate way in which the pandemic is affecting communities of color and pointed out the importance of calling out, naming structural systemic racism as a driver of these disparities. There's been a lot of talk about it. There are a lot of, you know, thankfully, a lot of people recognizing this. What's your take? Are people now finally starting to understand something that they should have understood, we should have understood, Um, since the 1800s because you gave that chronologic history of this is not new but but are we starting to see some traction of people really meaningfully going to make some differences what's your what's your expectation
2: so um first thank you guys again for inviting me back um great to be here great to speak with you michael um so yeah i I guess i want to reference the chronological history because i think it's important and and really talking about it today so what I was referencing was um, the 1899 publication and 1906 publication um, by W.E.B. W. Du Bois um, that was called, um, I'd have to look at my notes, but it was called uh, The Health and Physique of the American Negro. And it was actually really phenomenal in the sense that it was one of the first studies that really came out and had publication that talked about it wasn't a inferiority issue of African America to poor health, it really had to do with social determinants of health and inequities and systemic racism. And to take you back even further, um, you know, the real thought had been that, you know, and it was really couched in slavery that African Americans were just simply inferior. Um, And that had to do a lot with, you know, really justifying the reasons for that. And there's actually a great great, great podcast. I know it's controversial to admit, uh, mention, but the 1619 Project has a podcast out, and their third episode talks about, uh, it's called Bad Blood, and it talks about the history of healthcare and, and health disparities. And I encourage anyone to listen for background, but really there was this concept out there about, um, you know, after emancipation, African Americans were just in poor shape, particularly in health, because if you think about uh, the degradation to your body of slavery, your mental health, and then just being emancipated without resources, it really was a public health yeah. crisis. And the thought that came out of the medical community was they're just inferior. They're not meant to live by themselves. And so as that proliferated, um, that was just a thought. But with this study, it really was no, it has to do with social terms of health, it has to do with systemic racism, it has to do with uh, separation of medical facilities and access to just water and resources. Um, and so, like I mentioned in my presentation, if you actually follow that and you actually follow the data, there's a lot of the same issues that continue to occur decade after decade, um, and it really comes down to issues of systemic racism. So fast forward today, we're in this really just cataclysmic moment of the pandemic, um, really structural racism coming to the forefront with all of the police killings and real questions about how does our society move when it is not just one perceived look or one perceived dominant culture? So that's a long way of saying um, I am hopeful. Um, I'm very excited to see predominant organizations really take a stand and, and call it what it is. Um, the American Medical Association, American Public Health Association have all come out and declared racism a public health crisis. And I would agree. Um, so I think, yes. But I do think that organizations now have to really do the work um, and begin not looking at just external, forces, but how this kind of proliferates inside healthcare organizations and industries, and take a deep dive as to where these issues pop up, Um, because the tendency of action is to go out and work in communities without doing reflective work to the process procedures internally. Um, And I think that's where it comes. And so I'm hoping that this is not... uh, um, in some way, just a, a flavor of the moment, but really understanding how reducing health inequity, how confronting how the systemic racism proliferates becomes the norm and disparities are not a just accepted space like they have for years, but really become something to target and respond. Okay.
0: Thanks Danielle. That was, that was, thank you for recapping the history and actually presenting it the way I did as framing it for now and actually picking up on your last point and you made this comment in your presentation, I'm actually going to look to my notes because I wrote it down, you clearly stated that to achieve health equity, we need to make it a measurable component of quality initiative. So what matters, what what gets measured, it matters what matters gets measured. Um, so that's a bold statement with a lot of implications for the quality measurement enterprise for data collection, for data reflection, for action-oriented measures that present information to clinic- clinicians and their teams. Uh, could you expand upon that and, and, and what do you see as potential on the future and how, how hard do you think that's going to be?
2: So, Michael, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reverse the question on you for a second. How would you? Uh-huh, uh-huh, <laughs> how would you define quality? Achievement
0: of true quality. Wow. Well, it depends on the, <laughs> the, the, the depends on the stakeholder, the person it's from the person's perspective, right? And that's mm-hmm. why understanding the person is so important to understanding whether, in fact, quality is improving. So, I take you know, in the context of our conversation, that's a critical part of the equation. Understanding the person, what's priorities to that person, and so the I think the behind the question is the challenge we don't collect that data very regularly or systemically in, in health information technology systems. And so um, from my mindset is sort of where NCQA is trying to get to that measurement, trying to achieve what you articulated. I wanted to get your take on what, what are you doing? <laughs> no, doing I'm, I'm to it back to you.
2: <laughs> no, Andrew, I, only, I only ask that because, you know, when I look at the way that organizations do quality, right, um, if I were to just simplify it to its essence, simply like, there's a measurement that people are trying to get to from a population standpoint, right? So organizations, governments, departments set this, and people are to achieve it. So when you look at that carrot, it really is how can we get people to do that without a lot of question as to who is always achieving that? So I often use the analogy: it's like me going to the grocery store and saying, "I'm going to make the best soup ever. It's going to be chicken soup. It's going to be awesome. I'm going to get the freshest ingredients." And then I decide to leave the chicken and the broth and some herbs on the ground. And the and I continue to do that, but I still try to make that suit. So when we look at quality measures, it's super important to do strategic and um, stratify the data on a consistent level to see what you're actually achieving. Um, And that's important for multiple reasons. Populations change, community change, who you're serving is number one. But number two, quality interventions can actually be detrimental to increasing health equity or rather health inequities, if you're not taking that approach. Um, Advancing Health Equity actually pulled out this study, um, people can find it on their website, where they look at breast cancer um, and breast cancer programs and initiatives in in Chicago. And by doing a population approach, three things can happen. You could capture everybody, it moves the needle up, but usually what happens is is that one group goes over and another racial, ethnic, linguistic, or however you want to determine that data may actually widen the gap or may actually have no effect. So if we think about quality in its full scope, really to improve care, to improve access, to improve that experience and make our population healthy, we have to know that population and we have to know how to better um, reach that population and improve that, or else you're just recycling the same inequity pieces. So in my opinion and in in my coaching, I would say, yes, we have to stratify all of our measures by R.E.L. and we have to make sure, and R.E.L. is the short term for race, ethnicity and language, um and we have to make sure that we are paying attention to that. Um, because for some populations and some communities, it's very much split. The majority may be even the minority, the minority may be right with the majority. Um, and it doesn't make sense and you're not achieving true quality if you're only going for the quick wins you're going to continue to see the re, you know the same issues occur at, time and time again and additionally that's the way that we actually improve uh, equities as well by understanding who we're serving understanding where we're doing wrong and you know do that so i think some of the ways you can do that is making sure that it is strategic and constant and structured way at organizations and also making sure that we pay attention to the way that the the data is collected from the other spaces and trying to make consistent data capture processes. If you go to a provider network, if you go to an insurer, if you go to a state, and you look at how they collect demographic data, it's all over the place. Um, and so one way we can really begin to do that is making sure that we clean up that data and also look at it deeply and also making sure that we ask real questions and not monolithically paint groups, making sure when we cl- collect race, we collect ethnicity, when we collect language, we collect dialect. Um, and if it is the goal of quality to improve care,
0: you have to know who you serve. So that's a great lead into the next question we got. From the <laughs> audience was, you know, you mentioned intersectionalities and the importance of understanding those. You just listed a, a, a several structured data elements that we would want to have. How does that play into a data collection and what you do with the information to generate sort of insights and drive quality? So the intersectionality question was one that came through.
2: Yeah, intersectionality is, is is a difficult thing to always capture correctly, but I don't think that we shouldn't try. So if I were to take my own self, right, and I were to think about what I am as a person and how people would see me from a demographic standpoint, I am I identify myself as a cisgender woman. I'm an African American. I'm in my 30s. I won't tell you the exact number, and you know those are those are some things that make up me. I'm an English speaker. Um, So when we think about that, we have to be cognizant of that audience and what that means. And it is important. So if you're going to be doing a pregnancy initiative, it's important to understand that, yeah, what might work for people in their late 30s to 40s is not going to be as effective in their 18. And those that may not speak predominantly English, you know, may respond to things different. And so, again, it just comes down to that, you know, personalized, Person centered care that we all talk about in the industry. And and so without getting in sort of the soup of how intersectionality can be so dynamic, I think it's, it's respecting the communities that we talk to, having that feedback and conversation, and making the best efforts to strive to serve people in the best manner that they can um, receive care. Because that that is the goal.
0: Great. Now this next question came in through the chat when we were had your session. I'm actually going to take a look because it even includes a reference. So so, <laughs> so you ready? Uh, so yes. one question raised was um, related to whether the increased collection of race language data can in fact worsen bias when that's used as a feature or variable within machine learning or AI algorithms and predictive modeling. And the question referenced an article published in Science in 2019, which I'm not sure if you had a chance to look at, but Dissecting Racial Bias in an Algorithm Used to Manage the Health of Populations. And it concluded that the algorithm was less likely to refer Black people than white people who are equally sick to programs that aim to improve care for patients with complex medical needs. And and the authors in that article said, remedying this disparity would increase the percentage of black patients receiving additional help from 17 to 18% to 46 and a half percent. And the underlying challenge was they were using cost as a proxy for complexity. And and if, if people aren't getting the care, guess what? There aren't costs associated with their, those individuals. So um, A, do you agree that that's a concern? And B, have you seen it? And what can we do to help avoid sort of baking in um, bias in algorithms that are becoming much more frequently used, not just for healthcare, but for a lot of other parts of our society, job search, job qualifications or searching. So, so I'll turn it over to you. I'm sure you have some, some insights.
2: Yeah, I love this question. Because, I mean, you know, it's almost turning it on the head. And it's no fault of the person that asked to say, you know, if we didn't, we that and, and my answer is data is it what you do with the data and how it's built and who is building it um, really makes a difference right so you're right um, I, I did my research I read that and it kind of got me down a rabbit hole of all types of tech tools that have these issues with bias um, and there's a couple of, of, of ways I would talk about that so no I don't think that we should not be collecting REL data I think it's absolutely essential and should be increased and standardized um, through all of the way that we measure um, health outcomes. Number two, it really has to do with who is in the room developing these solutions and how are we actually doing sampling of that information? So one of the things is if I, I, so personal story, I've been in a bunch of different like innovation challenges and I was in one where um, I was the only woman in the room and a bunch of, uh, for lack of better terms, older white men were trying to pitch me um, to get somebody to buy a pregnancy um, app that was going to help black women. And my first question was, well, how many black women? And they were like, none. And then my second question was, so where was the black person in the development of this? None. And and why I say that is that you have to think about the diversity in the room. So one, when we think about this this is an opportunity to talk about diverse hiring. Um, Some of those biases can be eliminated by just having those perspectives in the room. And so that's one thing that we can begin doing. Another thing we have to begin doing is also thinking about this from end to end because it really is a waste of time, effort, and money. Um, One of the other studies I looked at was a um, application for dermatology and they took the sample sizes of what they were using to kind of find the skin issues or the dermatological issues was all from majority Caucasian people. So when they tried to apply that to folks that have darker skin, it didn't work. Um, And so again, it's really thinking about beyond the lens that you're in, one, and thinking about how down the stream are you trying to use this product in this place? And what could those things be that you need to think about when you actually build the product? Two, diversity in the room. So again, this is an opportunity to grow inclusion and diversity and have those voices to stop those things um, as well. And three, we have to think about design beyond just, um, what one audience would want. So it's not an issue to me of if it's, do we stop collecting the data and does the data create biases? The question becomes, no, we collect the data. We understand where biases come together. We have diverse audiences to, um, you know test and and et cetera so forth but also build what we're creating um and that's going to reduce some of the issues and i think what that article really pointed out to me was you know they did equity approach right so if they were to look at one layer deeper and not just look at the cost but look at who was using the system and how it was being used um and i would almost bet if you flipped that that piece and you saw who was costing more at another spectrum um if these people aren't getting into care up front they're getting into care at some other point um, and so, yeah, data is agnostic is
0: how we use it. That's a great point. And I, I just, uh, y- your last point specifically is like understanding the algorithm and the bias and then using it for the purposes, you know, if, as you said, if they're not getting the care, that's the answer. That's what you use the algorithm for, right? No, so, yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, so, so that that was great. I'm going to give you a, a couple of easier ones. Nothing's easy, right? Uh, how would you, I'm here for it. <laughs> so so um a very practical question i expect like, a one word answer uh, how would you modify the NCQA multicultural healthcare principles <laughs> to help organize organizations reduce disparities no that was wow. you you can use two words no seriously this is this is really important and you can help <laughs> NCQA, you know, your perspective is obviously very important here. Uh, so I'm curious if you have any thoughts. And that was a question that came in through the chat too. It's not me, it's, it's the uh, audience is asking that. That's not
2: a gotcha question, okay. Um, so, you know, I think as I stated before in the presentation, it's, it's, it's a good foundation, right? It's a great foundation to kind of think through how is your organization looking at equity? Because your, yours or rather NCQA's um, MHC distinction really gives you the foundation, the stepping stones of how to look through an equity pro- uh, project in a strategic way. In terms of modification, I think that, uh, I don't want to get people in trouble, but I think that, <laughs> you know, I look at it, I'm not sure what the teeth is. So one of the examples are, is that one of the pieces um, or one of the the standards is to come up with a disparity intervention, measure it, you know, evaluate it. there's no kind of structure and longevity. There's no kind of um, kind of holding the seat to a measurement or what you're actually looking at. It's very up in the air. In terms of how you look at some of your samplings, there's no you know, structure around that at all. So in some ways, organizations can get away with doing the bare minimum and still getting that. In other ways, it gives people and organizations that may be more equity focused a really great tool set. Um, so I think one of the things I would probably look at is standard five, which is the one, one kind of talks about the disparity initiative and push it apart and try to see what are you guys actually trying to achieve with that? Um, is it your goal to demonstrate um that there is improvement is it your goal to have it um intertwined with the quality metric um because most organizations that go after nhc also have other types of accreditation um is it to be standing alone because i mean to achieve real equity it has to be weaved into everything that's going on it cannot be stand alone Um, The other thing, too, is I think that I would probably put a little bit more weight on the interplay with um, culture and um, education of providers. Um, One of your standards looks at the diversity of your provider network, um, which I think is fantastic, but it doesn't really talk about how you require, you know, that cultural conversation. Um, And then also, um, I think just kind of giving some tools about how do you stratify race, ethnicity, and language um, to try to make it a little bit more structured um, and again, to push it with some quality metrics um, that are in other accreditation um, type mechanisms. So I think MHC is a great foundation. Um, I absolutely think it's a very good tool to make sure organizations are looking at these things in a critical way. But again, I think if equity is to be achieved, it can't be that one and done. It has to be kind of pulled through other other accreditation pieces.
0: That's great, Danielle. I'll make sure our design folks here uh, those recommendations and suggestions, so thanks.
2: I'm going to get so many people mad at me. By
0: that. I don't think so. I think, I, think it, you, you know, I think the design was, as you alluded to at the end, sort of a foundation. Now it's time to sort of take it and move it forward and, and make it more real. Uh, one last question for you, and it has to also came from the audience. Who or where can we turn to see good examples of where addressing health equity is generated the return investment back to the name of your presentation. Any examples that you can direct to in the literature, news or something that would help people see what you're describing uh, in action?
2: Yeah, um, I think that I would probably, there's a couple of really great examples. So um, Advancing Health Equity um, has some great examples. Cultural of Health from Robert Wood Johnson has some great examples. Those are very kind of very specific. If you're looking from a um, a fully uh, organizational space, um, Connecticut Department of Health um, used a algorithm to kind of measure ROI with health equity and they saw that it worked. Um, and so what they found is that they um, were a- able to um, calculate how um, improved data could support their care sooner and they had great spa- uh, great results in that. Um, I also think that there's a couple other spaces that also do that. And again, I'm looking at my notes to not misquote myself. Um, New York has great um, organizations and particularly Sutter Health, not, that's not New York, I'm sorry, but Sutter Health is one that's done some great work with the pandemic. Um, Montefiore has some great examples of how they've integrated health equity. Um, so there's a lot of organizations um, and spaces that have done that. Um, and But the, the the issue is with a lot of health equity projects, I think is that, Oftentimes they're done in a very limited space and not as a continued sustained initiative, which has been the challenge of the field. Um, but I think organizations are really seeing where they need to improve that. And I think the pandemic has honestly pushed a lot of the effort. Um, and so people are looking more critically at the role of race and access and social determinants of health and intersectionality and racism and sexism and xenophobia and how that presents and impacts health. Um, and so I think as we look at how some organizations are beginning to really kind of recognize Reckon with that um you'll see a lot more examples
0: that's great danielle thank you this is wonderful it's a great follow-up to your great presentation so we hope for the hopefully the digital measurement community and then those who attended the digital quality summit will get to listen to this we're obviously going to promote it and look forward to having you back on maybe in the blog area maybe another podcast and catch up with you in a few months see how things are going
2: yeah, I would love to do either one. Um, I'll definitely absolutely participate with the blog. Um, thank you guys for just letting us have the space. Um mayor health myself to speak. Um again, this issue isn't going anywhere. Um, and it is really incumbent us to be our own stewards to push this forward and to really be leaders. And, you know, healthcare the first, you know, kind of space for providers is to do no harm. And so As we look at ourselves internally, structurally, everything, I think it's just a really great opportunity to actually have some improved results while making the world more equitable. So I'm always here to talk about this. Michael, thank you so much. Um, I appreciate everything that you do and the opportunities that you've given me.
0: Um, And I look forward to supporting any way I can. Thank you. Wonderful. Thanks so much, Danielle. You take care.
1: And that does it for this episode of Inside Healthcare. Before you go, check out NCQA's Digital Measurement Community at ncqa.org backslash DMC. Thanks again for joining us. Take care.